0: Today's the day. Go get it now. Please check out my new nonfiction book, The Mysterious Case of Rudolph Diesel. Publishers Weekly gives the book a starred review, calling it a thrilling investigation and a wildly enjoyable outing. Lee Child says outstanding and a conclusion worthy of James Bond. Historian Jay Winnick says, equal parts Walter Isaacson and Sherlock Holmes, The Mysterious Case of Rudolph Diesel, yanks back the curtain on the greatest caper of the twentieth century. The book is out now, everywhere you get your books. Please check it out, and I promise you'll love it.
2: Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors, and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations.
3: Hi, I'm novelist Chris Gojalian. Welcome to Doug Brunt's Dedicated, the podcast where Doug introduces you to some of our most creative and best-selling writers including in the first season alone, novelists Jennifer Egan, Jack Carr, Jenny Jackson, and James Patterson and Yours Truly, proving you do not have to have a first name that begins with J to be on the show. Why are you hearing me right now instead of Doug? Because Doug has a fantastic new book now on sale. The Mysterious Case of Rudolf Diesel. An incredible story as gripping as the best of David Graham and Eric Larson. A tale of an arms race, Gilded age dramas, celebrity, cutthroat robber barons, and a missing inventor as important as Edison, Bell, and the Wright Brothers. I loved this book. I devoured it, and you will too. And so Doug and I switched places for this edition of Dedicated. And I'm going to interview Doug about that new book, his career, his process, and because this is Dedicated, booze. Doug (laughs) is the New York Times bestselling author of Ghosts of Manhattan, The Means, Trophy Sun, and upcoming The Mysterious Case of Rudolf Diesel and host of this top-rated, serious XM author podcast dedicated with Doug Brunt, a Philadelphia native. He lives in Connecticut with his wife and three children. You can find him always on douglasbrunt.com. Doug, welcome back to your
0: podcast. It's wonderful to be here. Chris, that was such a great introduction. We might have to have like a co-host situation going forward.
3: I don't know. I don't know if I can compete with you in the co-hosting department, but I love to drink with you, I must admit. What are you drinking today?
0: <laughs> I'm going Manhattan. This is my my number one drink, really, especially in the winter, but really all four seasons. You can never go wrong.
3: What is that cherry?
0: Luxardo cherry. There's only one way to go on this, and actually, there have been a number of guests on the show. I'm going to start fixing it. There have been a number of guests on the show, and everyone agrees. Well, actually, it was uh, Craig Mazin, who was the showrunner for The Last of Us on HBO, who said it's Luxardo or it's a mistake.
3: <laughs> what makes a Luxardo cherry so special?
0: I don't. You know, the the kind of cherries I actually can't stand the Maraschino ones. They're they're sort of that candy apple red that go on the top of a sundae. Those are not good in a drink the luxardo let me let me read what it says it's an italian company but it's sort of like bourbon infused and sort of a candied cherry it's dark dark color kind of syrupy but it doesn't have that sort of red thing it's more of like a I don't know, like a brown um i don't know i don't know what it's It's very different from the cherries you'd find in a in a dessert or like a shirley temple You're- you
3: know you know you're a chemist i knew you were a chemist from the first time i was on the show <laughs> but you really really if this writing thing or this podcast thing doesn't work out for you you do have a future as a bartender
0: you know i have a past as a bartender too so i uh i could fall back on that although i will, i know Wait, i mean, know we're gonna talk a little bit about my uh my background and prior work the hardest job i ever had was waiting tables bartending was a piece of cake compared to that if you you know it's one thing to be at like a burger joint waiting tables but if you're at a decent uh-huh. restaurant That is the hardest job in the world.
3: Okay, where were you waiting tables and where were you a bartender?
0: At the Jersey Shore. There was this restaurant called The Mooring that no longer exists. And, um, you know, it wasn't super fancy, but it's nice. If you ordered a martini, it came in a martini glass. You know, there's real stemware and things like that. And so people would order martinis. I'd come out with nine martinis on a tray and five out of 10 times I would spill martinis all over whoever was ordering them. The other, there were other waiters and waitresses there who were sort of, because I had lied about having any waiting experience, and that was obvious on day one. And so this team of waitresses and other other waiters would kind of help me out and get me through the day. But it was when I was in there, it was just a matter of survival, you know. Uh, and then I bartended was Jersey Store as well. Yes, it was for me, especially you know the place where I bartended was a restaurant that would turn into a nightclub. So bartending for the restaurant hour was a little harder, but still easier than waiting tables. You know, you've got your sort of station where you can operate. And I wasn't running around with big trays of food and things like that. And then when it turned into the nightclub, all I was doing was pouring Jager shots and opening beers for people, which is a piece of cake.
3: Look at that. Could you do the Tom Cruise juggling thing behind the bar?
0: (laughs) If I flip this, it'll be a disaster. We'll, We'll ruin sound equipment.
3: Okay, we won't flip it then. Okay, that is one pretty Manhattan. Cheers.
0: Cheers, Okay, I'm drinking a Negroni. And my Negroni is. And thank you so much for doing this.
3: Oh my gosh, I love the book and it is wonderful to be with you. I mean, it's just a fantastic book. Okay, so I've got a Negroni which matches yours. It is Bar Hill Gin, Vermont Vermouth from um, Campari. So two thirds of this is from
0: Vermont. By the way, the Bar Hill gin you gave me as a gift, which is very generous. You brought in a bottle of Bar Hill gin last time you're on. I've gone through it and a second bottle as well. It's terrific.
3: Thank you. Thank you. It is good. Vermont does many things well, and we've discovered we are really good with distilleries. We are really good with spirits. Who knew? (laughs) Okay. So when you were a bartender, when you were waiting tables, were you writing on the side, post-college, post-grad school?
0: This was during college and maybe one year after. I was not really writing then, uh, but I was always reading a lot. When I grew up, I was that pretty nerdy kid. And I was, you know, if I was down at the beach, I was the one kid who was pretty happy with a rainy beach day. Everyone else wants to run around and go on the ocean, which I also love that stuff too. But if it rained, I loved it because there was this little library in the beach town and I would go there and read or, or get a book. And when I was a little older, I was also into Dungeons and Dragons, which, reinforces my nerd theory but a couple friends of mine and I would go play Dungeons and Dragons in this little spot in that library too on a rainy day and so always a reader a bit of a, an experimental writer but I never got an MFA or or studied writing in a serious way.
3: Were you reading mostly novels?
0: So my progression goes Frog and Toad into Hardy Boys into Tolkien and I had a big Ludlum and uh, Hemingway phase around the same time, Ludlum and Hemingway. I'd kind of alternate between the two. And read a a fair amount of nonfiction as well.
3: I always knew you as a novelist until I met you in person when we were at the Sirius studio and you told me all about Rudolph Diesel. I mean, I knew you from Ghosts of Manhattan. I knew, you know, as a novelist. When did you know you wanted, or when did you start writing? Because your, your first job when you weren't a bartender wasn't novelist.
0: That's right, I, I worked a little bit in finance, and then I got into tech and, uh, and well, sort of the investing side, investing in tech, and then I joined a company in an operational role. So rather than investing in companies, I went in and was president and CEO of a tech company. Yep. And I ran that for a while and loved it. You know, I think entrepreneurship and writing have some overlap. You know, you, you create the next page, the next chapter of the company each day. And then there are things that don't overlap at all. Like, you know, managing a team, Uh, working with a board and investors and there's a lot of things that I was okay at pretty good at but didn't love that increasingly took up so much of my time and um, one of the things that I have loved about writing is I do embrace my alone time I love when I go start my writing day it's time to be by myself and to think and be creative and
3: where was the tech uh, company located I mean I know it was was international but where was the main office
0: main office was Palm Beach Gardens, Florida, but I never lived there full time. I was in New York. So I'd fly down on a Monday morning. I'd stay there till either Thursday night or Friday morning and fly back. And I would do that at least every other week, sometimes more. But we also had a London office and I was out in San Francisco a lot. So it was a ton of travel. And after doing that for a while, I was really getting ground down. And I remember talking to my wife, we were strolling the kids in Central Park and she was saying, you seem you know, so short tempered and sort of burnt out. And I, uh, you know, she was, of course, right. And yeah, I cannot that time, see you though,
3: short-tempered. Oh,
0: be- <laughs> well, thank you. For- you know, that's because I generally have a, a Manhattan in one hand, which keeps me happy. And, um, but I was, I was telling her that, you know, all the travel really was wearing us down. We just had kids and I, I was feeling less happy in the role. And at that time, because I'd been traveling so much and spending so much time on planes or in airport terminals, waiting to get on the plane that I had, uh, while I previously, I had spent a lot of the time reading, I had gotten this idea to start writing, but not as a, not with a thought that it would be a career or even something that would see the light of day ever. I hadn't even shown it to her. Uh, it was just fun. It was like, okay. Was, around with poetry were you writing
3: what would become your remarkable first novel ghosts of Manhattan.
0: That's right. It was, it was the very rough first draft of ghost of Manhattan. And,
3: and you're writing that on planes uh, and, and airports.
0: Yes, yeah, a weird, and I think many people have this story of having, you know, written something while they were commuting to their their day job. And I know writing for you came as a second career. You had, you were a big yeah. ad ad industry guy. Grisham was writing a lot of his first books on trains going to work sure. as a lawyer and things like that. So it was that same thing. I was writing on planes and airport terminals, and you know, with bourbon or coffee stains on yellow legal pads as I'm going through pages and pages.
3: That means your first book, though. Really isn't autobiographic at all because Goats of Man, you know, it's set in Manhattan, obviously. It's about a, a finance guy who works in Manhattan. Um, you know, it's set in 2005, right? Do I have the year right? 2005 or is it 2006? It's set
0: in 0708, more around that 07, bubble. That's right, before the crash,
3: 0708. Yeah. 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 So um, why did you choose that subject for a first book?
0: I was living in Manhattan, had a lot of friends who were working in that industry some of what led to that bubble, a lot of what led to that bubble was the credit default swaps and the derivatives that were being traded out of Merrill Lynch and other places like Merrill And I knew a lot of folks working there. And so in a sense had a front row seat to how that bubble got going. So I had a technical understanding, you know, from, from a layman's view really of how that bubble began and some of the perverse incentives on wall street. If they're going to compensate you on volume, then that person's going to give you volume. You know, do more of these trades and we pay you more. Well, it doesn't matter what's in the trade. I'm getting paid on just doing 100 of them rather than one. And so, of course, the, the the compensation incentives really led to a lot of what caused the problem there. And so anyway, I had an understanding of that. And then the book is really more about a marriage, but it's set with Wall Street and Bear Stearns in particular as the backdrop for this uh, lifestyle and a marriage that's surviving that. It's it's
3: a, yeah, it's a great character study. It's a, sort of a a novel about a young man's come to Jesus moment, Nick Farmer, you know, figuring mm-hmm. it out that I, I can't live my life without a moral compass. And that's why I love the book so much. It reminded me a lot of Bright Light's Big City for a New Generation.
0: Oh, thank you. That's a great comparison for me.
3: Oh, I mean they're they're both <laughs> great books in my opinion. Um but when you were on those planes commuting between New York and Florida and London, you weren't anticipating that This was going to become a full-time gig.
0: I was not at all. In fact, I wasn't anticipating that anyone would ever really read it. There was a, there was a small chance that I might show it to my wife. That was really the extent of it. And then when I did, she tells the story in a very funny way because it's sort of nerve wracking. Like if your spouse hands you their, their novel, and then it turns out to be utter garbage, how awkward is that to have to give that feedback? Oh my gosh, she wants to be a writer, but oh boy, not, not any good. But she read it and was surprised at how good it was and really encouraged me to, you know, to find an agent. And so I polished it up a little bit. And then, you know, actually, in fairly short order, was able to find an agent who believed in it, but also believed it needed more polishing. So we went uh, through a few more turns with an agent before it went out for a deal, uh, but then was uh, very happy to find a deal with Simon & Schuster for that first book.
3: Sure. Absolutely. You know, my wife um, is similarly candid with me, and I want that. As she once said to me, when she was criticizing something in a book, and clearly I was pushing back,
0: she said, mm-hmm.
3: "Wouldn't you rather hear it from me than the New York Times?"
0: <laughs> and, yeah, and she was right. And and uh, sometimes brutal also comes to mind as an adjective. Like she'll circle whole pages with a red marker and then a line through it, and then in the margin just write "boring" or you know "off topic" or whatever. And when I hear that from her, and then what? I hear it sort of echoed through my agent or something, then I know it's got to go.
3: Yep. So how many readers do you have for a book, whether it's a novel or your fantastic new book about Rudolf Diesel? You've got your wife, you've got your editor, you've got your agent. What, what I mean? How? What is your process in terms of feedback?
0: That's really it in the early stages. I, I, first of all, I, I really like to get a completed draft or something. I don't want to write snippets or, or show writing until it's Pretty far along, if not a completed first draft, close to it. Before I show it, even to my wife, and then beyond that, it goes to my agent. I've got a terrific agent on this, and um, and you know we can talk more about this in a bit. But on the nonfiction side, the selling to the market process is very different. You know, in the novels and fiction side, you sell a completed book, or maybe you know you're an established writer like yourself or Lee Child, and you have a two or three book deal or something like that. And and you, for the new book, you might just sort of say, "Here's what I'm thinking about doing with an outline." But on the nonfiction side, you don't sell a book or a manuscript. You sell a proposal, and then the book is written in conjunction with the editor. And the proposals have a very standard format. There might be a sample chapter, but there's a cast of characters. There's what my original research will be. There's what competitive books are in the market, that sort of thing. And so it's like a roughly 30-page document with a fairly standard format. And I didn't even know that. So my agent sort of educated me on here's what the proposal needs to look like. And so I backed into that because I'd already been doing lots of writing. So I took lots of my writing. And so at least the sample chapter was largely (laughs) available and then built a proposal. And then we took that out. So my agent has become uh, a very trusted source of information on on things too.
3: Because you wrote three really wonderful novels over the space of, you know, less than, you know, eight or nine years. And then all of a sudden you are writing this fantastic nonfiction book on the mysterious case of Rudolf Diesel? What in the world moved you from books like Trophy Sun or Ghosts of Manhattan to this really unbelievably fascinating, um, not footnote to history, but unknown part of history with unbelievable ramifications, literally 110 years later? I mean, this is a book that is is—it's gripping and it's page, page-turner, but it's also a book with so many footnotes. It's amazing. This is really well-researched and it's so different from a book. What in the world led you to move to Rudolf Diesel?
0: It's not as bizarre as it sounds on, on First Blush because one thing that always drove a lot of my fiction writing was research with Trophy Zone, which is about a tennis prodigy. I'd done a ton of primary research. I interviewed James Blake, who was a top American tennis player, and John Isner, and and a number of other people who are maybe never cracked the 500, but they were, they now you know maybe they got 500 and they went to Bolitary and all that, and now they run the Rackets program at a club or something like that. So lots of research for all those books. The political book, I interviewed James Carville and Bob Beckel and and a number of people who are currently in Congress or have run presidential campaigns and things like that. So research has always been a big part of my fiction writing as well, and a part that I loved and and really enjoyed. And I, as I know you do, you traveled on location. If you're going to write a book in Africa, yeah. you are going to Africa. And it helps propel yeah. things forward on the page. So the research piece was something I loved. And the story of how I stumbled on this is really kind of bizarre because I, in 2015 or so, I bought a boat. And I grew up on little 18-foot boats with small outboard motors. And those small outboard motors are all gasoline You know it's a johnson or mercury you know 100 horsepower engine all gas when you get a bigger boat the bigger engines tend to be diesel so i bought this old boat and i was talking to the guy about how to fix it up and he said well you know a boat like this you really ought to consider diesel engines for it and i because it had gasoline at the time and i thought well why why is that And he gave me the whole spiel on diesel engines that a hundred percent of boat fires come from gasoline engines none from diesel the fuel is not flammable diesel fuel doesn't give off fumes the way gasoline has these fumes that you smell all the time and you get three times the fuel efficiency. So if you have a 200-gallon tank, you'll go two or three times as far on a diesel boat and a gas boat. So I thought, well, that's great. So I did repower to diesel and made you know other fix-ups to the boat. And then later, as a novelist, was I don't know if you ever do this, but I was sort of goofing around online looking for ideas that may or may not inspire a story. I was in between books. And I came across this list of mysterious disappearances at sea. And down the list was <laughs> Rudolph Diesel.
3: Straight out of the board. Like, boys.
0: Diesel. That's how little I knew about the engine. I didn't know there was a Rudolph Diesel who invented it. I just always have seen diesel. And it's now mistakenly spelled with a lowercase d, which, I, you know, I, that would never have stopped me either. I see lowercase d diesel all the time. But it's Rudolf Diesel. It's a name. It's, it's mistakenly spelled with a lowercase d. So I went down this thing, and it turns out it is the person connected to the agent, engines. He did invent it. He first showed it to the world in 1897 and went through this crazy disappearance story that was like on a, you know, web blog.
3: Okay. Take us back in time. 110 years ago, it's September 29th, 1913. What happens? Uh, we, no, no, not, what, what you revealed might've happened, but what does the world think happens?
0: What the way that's a, that's a great catch because we don't want to give away that the conclusion oh. of the book is, is sort of mind blowing. And, um, has been supported by former CIA, former UK special ops and and someone like has even sort of found some archival stuff that is like we can't you know anyway it's it has a, a conclusion that we should not yet reveal because it's it's a bit mind-blowing but in 1913 September 29th Rudolf Diesel boards a passenger ferry in Belgium on his way to Great Britain and so he's traveling across the North Sea on an overnight passenger ferry and he disappears in the night So in the morning, he's supposed to go to breakfast at 6 a.m. He's not there. They search his stateroom, and he's not there. They hold the ship at sea. They search the ship. All they find are his hat and his coat by the rail at the stern of the ship, sort of seemingly marking where he must have gone over the rail into the sea in the night. And so people are wondering, well, did he fall overboard? But it was a very calm night. The seas were calm. There was no wind. It's not like he got washed over. And so the prevailing theory is suicide that he got up in the night and he jumped off the ship. But there's also speculation in the media immediately. And again, as you were pointed out, Diesel at the time was a huge celebrity. He was up there with Ford, Tesla, Edison, you know, he was one of the biggest in the world. Marconi, yeah. And he's really been scrubbed from history, and, and as this book shows, deliberately scrubbed from history. But at the time he was a huge name. And so newspapers all across the world, from the New York Times all through Western Europe out to Russia were remarking on this weird disappearance of the celebrity Rudolf Diesel. And newspapers also began to pick up speculation about potentially that he was murdered by one of two people, either Kaiser Wilhelm II, the emperor of Germany, or John Rockefeller, the founder of Standard Oil and the richest man in the world. And there are incredible reasons that I explore in the book. The book has a bit of a buildup as to why they had a motive to kill him.
3: Why might John Rockefeller have wanted to kill Rudolf Diesel?
0: The interesting thing about Standard Oil at that time in 1913 is that they had made all their money in distilling crude oil or rock oil for kerosene. They were in the lighting business, the illumination business. And Edison and others who have, have done a lot of work to invent the light bulb had wiped them out. In the way that kerosene wiped out whale oil and the whole whaling business, the light bulb was wiping out Standard Oil. And they were desperate for a new market. And when they were making kerosene, by the way, gasoline was a waste product. It was a nuisance. They would throw it away. But now with the internal combustion engine just beginning, it could run on gasoline. And so Rockefeller had this lifeline of gasoline as long as the combustion engine used that for fuel. The diesel engine won the 1900 Paris World's Fair running peanut oil. It didn't need gasoline or any, anything distilled from petroleum though it could you can run petro diesel for it it runs on a much heavier viscous oil it can come from coal tar nut oil vegetable oil or a petrol diesel which is mainly what happens today by the way but diesel was advocating that it go on vegetable oil or nut oil and cuz he was saying look everyone we we don't need to be beholden to these parts of the world where there is oil coming out of the ground we can grow it we have farmers in these various countries everyone can grow their own fuel for their own engines and that was not what Rockefeller wanted to hear. He still needed people to be addicted to yeah. rock oil or petroleum drilled out of the ground. And diesel was advocating another way. And the diesel engine to this day does not need petroleum. In fact, Willie Nelson, he ran his tour bus back you know, around 15 years ago or so running on recycled kitchen grease basically vegetable oil. And he was saying the same thing. Like, we, we have farmers. We can grow our fuel. We don't need to run around and get it from somewhere else. So that's, that, that was, what, he was, Diesel represented a major threat to Rockefeller. And in
3: 1913, when I was reading your, your remarkable book, one of the parallels I thought was, imagine a more popular version of Elon Musk disappearing, just mm-hmm. not appearing in London when he's supposed to be there, and the world wonders, was he murdered? Was it suicide? Did he, was he washed overboard? What happened to Elon Musk? that's kind of i got the sense of what it was like in 1913 when Rudolf diesel never appeared in london
0: that's right it was a huge deal i mean of course we don't have the instantaneous thing of social media but the newspaper coverage if you follow it over that two weeks and as you know world war one started less than a year later so a lot of this just got completely paved over but if you look at the newspaper coverage and i spent eons in old archives of the you know the mike Ruffish newspaper stuff from that period there was so much crazy reporting and conflicting reporting, witness testimony from crew members of the passenger ferry. All of it was just nuts. But every newspaper was staying on the beat with daily updates. And you know, you know not to give up too much of the story, but you know, there, they, there's rumors of corpses and all sorts of crazy stuff that was really never reconciled until now.
3: We often find out later that our, um, our most revered scientists and inventors Have feet of clay. Edison, for example, Ford, but not Diesel. Diesel in your book feels really special to me. Tell me some of Diesel's really lovely eccentricities and what made him a really good person as well as a really good scientist.
0: He came from very humble beginnings. They're German by heritage. His parents had already moved to Paris. So he was born in Paris, France. They were expats though. This is before Germany existed as a state, which didn't happen until Bismarck came along and they, he sort of united all these German states into, you know, back then it was Prussia and Bavaria and various other German states. He, he united them into a, an organized German state, which really happened with the Franco-Prussian War. So Prussia gets all these other German, Germanic allies and they go to war with France just at the time that Diesel and his Germanic family are living there. So all people of German heritage are, are kicked out of Paris. So they're very disrupted. They're they're happily living there in Paris. They get along with everybody. They get along with the French, but all of a sudden there's the Franco-Prussian War. So they're kicked out of Paris and they're refugees and they go to London. They left penniless. They had to abandon their shop and their home and they go to London where the Industrial Revolution is, of course, in full swing. And they've got tenement housing and these slums, these industrial slums. So they go there penniless. They barely have a roof over their heads. And Rudolph witnesses really what is, I mean, it's it's in the era nearly of Oliver Twist, you know, Charles Dickens, Oliver Twist, if you think of that period. And he actually lived in the neighborhood that they describe in that story. And he arrives at the same age as Oliver Twist. He's 12 years old in London, living right in there in that whole period of time. So that kind of paints the picture of the life he was living for a period of time in London. And witnesses the worst of the industrial age, you know. 10, 11-year-old kids getting marched into these textile factories and working without clean air, food, working incredibly long hours, not going to school, doing all that sort of thing. And he gets an opportunity to go study in Germany through a, a distant relative. He clearly has a gifted mind. He goes into this math program where he immediately excels. And of course, he's desperate to excel because he's just seen the worst living conditions you could possibly imagine and knows that if he doesn't... Get a lifeline through education. He's going back there, and there are a couple of fun stories too. Like you know, fast forward a few years, he's in graduate programs where he's he's now among the most revered engineering minds in Germany. Though he's still a student, but he's being taught by the best. He's been given scholarships to advanced engineering schools in Munich, and he still he doesn't have money. Of course, he's still f- poor, and uh, but he 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 shows up to do his uh, his classwork in like the traditional Bavarian blue over cover all workman clothes where every other student sort of in their more finery clothes. And he's just always been humble. Everyone who encounters him throughout his life describes him as having a certain humility and hard working attitude. And, you know, someone like Edison, who's a little bit more of a uh, sharp elbowed and a little more arrogant, they have a meeting and I won't give away too much, but they meet in 1912. And the contrast is hilarious, really.
3: It's a great scene in the book. Did you ever consider a novel about Diesel? Why did you decide after three great novels, you know, about politics, about tennis, about finance, here you've got a a story of invention. Why did you decide this is the nonfiction book?
0: That's a great question because I wrestled with that in the beginning. And at first I thought it would be historical fiction because there's so little about him. Particularly in the English language, there's almost nothing. And I thought, well, I can fill in the gaps. I've got a I've got the scaffolding of a story here. And this mysterious disappearance <clears throat> is fantastic. And I'll fill in the dialogue and I'll bring it all to life. And then I thought, you know, that's no way to treat it because there is nothing about it. Like I, I can find more and I, I want to actually do justice to the person, to the story. I think I have an opportunity here to to really tell his story rather than to make up a lot of it. You know, there, there was something that I could unearth. And I had a real belief about what happened early on, even before I'd found tons of research that supported the conclusion. And uh, so I thought, well, let me let me just see what I can unearth. And then I got into archives, and some of this was during COVID, so I had to make friends in archives in Germany and things like that where they would, they would copy things and send it to me. And the more I found, the more aha, once I had, had, thought about what might have happened. I sort of tested my conclusion against further evidence. So I I tested my theory against further and every once in a while I'd I'd find more and more and more. I'm like everything supported. There's so many holes in the other theories. And as I found more evidence in archives and things that have been overlooked, everything pointed more and more and more and more to this conclusion. And so I thought I've got to do this as nonfiction. And then Fast forward two years, I found troves of information in different archives where it was very clear.
3: And what's uh, so wonderful about the mysterious case of Rudolf Diesel is, you know, I said David Graham and Eric Larson are sort of, you know, contemporaries of this kind of book. But Agatha Christie as well, because it's a Mm. great mystery with just a shocking, wonderful, positively Aristotelian ending. You think to yourself, that's utterly surprising, but it couldn't have ended any other way, which is the perfect kind of ending, according to Aristotle.
0: We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back.
2: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and
3: When you were going through all of this archival material, did you ever think to yourself this is a an era, this is a character out of a Greek tragedy? Because he was so big at the time, and now he's utterly forgotten, except for, as you said, this engine that people don't even attribute to him in the same way that Kleenex gets a lowercase K, he gets a lowercase D for Diesel.
0: Yeah. I, I know what you mean there. there. There's like the you know the fatal flaw of the of the character, this noble character, but it has a fatal flaw that brings him down. And with Diesel, one of the things that's surprising about him to me is that he had this incredible ability to see around corners, into the future, from a technology perspective. You know things that we're talking about today, uh, 110 years later, using alternative fuels, vegetable oil, they, we can grow our fuel. Uh, or he even talked about using the power of the sun as a source of energy for our, our engines and our, our use here, our consumption here. And yet he also was naive in other ways too, in that his intended uses for the engine were for weavers and woodworkers and jewelry makers and dentistry. You know, he, he wanted to enable a decentralized economy. And, and, you know, his father was an artisan who worked with leather and he wanted to have the engine be a power source for small businesses, you know, back in the age of the steam engine, when the steam engines were the size of a house, the size of a room, he wanted a small compact engine that some small business could also use. And of course, that never happened. That maybe Tesla really did that. The, the, his electric motors was, was more yeah. of a small business power source. It wasn't diesel. In fact, the, with diesel, the opposite happened from what he intended. It became the power source of big business and giant ships and trains and things like that. He also was a little bit naive, not only in the technology of the engine, but in his licensing structure is yet another parallel for this naivete that he had, because he insisted it, back, back in that era, if you had an invention, you would then, and this happened with Lin's refrigeration company as well. It was sort of the, the licensing model of the time. He had an invention, it was patented, and then he would sell licensing rights by nation, So someone could take the exclusive rights to manufacture and market this in North America and in Russia and in Denmark and in Finland, on and on. And one thing he required of every licensee was that they contribute back to a centralized pool of knowledge, all their advancements, so that all of the diesel community could benefit from that. This sort of very liberal sharing of ideas and advancements that would bring everyone forward. And of course that sounds wonderful, And it's not at at all what happened, you know, and and nor could it in that era where nationalism was prevailing and social Darwinism was prevailing. You know, nationalism basically broke up the Austrian empire because they had 11 languages, you know, and as nationalism rose, they they couldn't hold it all together. And, And the Austrian empire sort of broke up and the same thing was with diesel. So every licensee, they stopped sharing. Just as France got very nervous about Germany and Germany about France and Great Britain, As they made advances with the diesel technology they're like well we're not going to share this with some company over in france so the sharing stopped so diesel's vision yet again both on the the technology on even on his licensing structure was stymied and he was sort of naive to think that it ever might have worked in the first place
3: two of my favorite parts of the book were the surprising people who fell in love with diesel technology early ranging from the Bush family, the Beer family in Missouri, to Tsar Nicholas in Russia. Were you surprised by who saw the potential in Diesel and who didn't? I mean, I wouldn't have thought of the Bush family and Tsarist Russia as being bedfellows in seeing the advantages of a new tech.
0: It is fascinating, and it goes to the cast of characters in this sort of gilded age era, and as I got more and more into the diesel story, I thought, oh my gosh, Adolphus Bush, the founder of Anheuser-Busch is a central character. this, And he is a huge character in all this. So he took the exclusive rights for North America. And he was a real pioneer in the brewing business. He had the first refrigerated rail cars, and which is what helped Budweiser become the national brand because they could keep it refrigerated and send it everywhere. And he recognized diesel was a, a valuable technology for him to pump water. You know, that not only does the diesel engine power submarines and U-boats, but it has uses on land as well. So it was powering water and things for his brewing business or or generating electricity for his refrigeration. And in Russia as well, that the Nobel family and, and the Tsar recognized the importance of diesel. And by 1910, outside of Germany, Russia was the most dieselized country in the world. The expertise of the Nobel family who are related to, but were not the Alfred Nobels. It was his brothers. The dynamite nobles, right? That's right, yeah. So Alfred was the dynamite guy and his two older brothers basically founded the Russia oil, Russian oil business and were the exclusive manufacturers of diesel engines. And the Russian Navy would, had a law that would only acquire diesel technology from a domestic firm. So the Nobel brothers, Robert and Ludwig, built all the diesel engines in Russia.
3: What is the legacy of Rudolf Diesel's disappearance. How did his disappearance change the world? And if this is too much of a spoiler, say Bojalian, I'm not answering that.
0: <laughs> well, I'll answer what I can without without spoiling. You know, his, his disappearance goes to the heart of the mystery in some ways, because it has been, well, th- this much I'll spoil, it wasn't a suicide. And uh, that it shows how, how shrouded in mystery that has been deliberately so and there's the legacy, so many suspects he...
3: the fact that it might not have been a suicide one of the reasons why i love this book is there are so many interesting possible suspects which is why it's such a great agatha christie history
0: yeah. yeah yeah and and in the end because you know encyclopedia britannica and and every other biographer of diesel has presumed suicide The deficit of appreciation for Rudolph Diesel is massive. People, again, the lowercase d, they don't recognize that there was a man who did this. He should be up there with Marconi, Bell, Edison, Ford, and he's not. Most people don't even know there was a Rudolph Diesel. They just think diesel engine, and that's the end of it. So the legacy of the man is really underappreciated. The legacy of the engine, of course, we're still in the middle of it. It's too early for the legacy of the engine because even today, more than 100 years later, Imagine a pineapple growing in a, in a tropical region, every bit of heavy machinery, farm equipment to grow that pineapple is diesel powered. It then gets put on a truck. Anything larger than a passenger car is diesel powered. It then goes to port where a crane, diesel powered, lifts it onto a ship, a hundred percent of cargo ships in the world run on diesel. It goes across the ocean, goes into port again, lifted off onto a truck, onto a train, a hundred percent of trains diesel-powered. It goes into some place where it's refrigerated. The refrigeration is probably powered by diesel. Nothing moves, even today, without diesel.
3: You know, I was reading the book, I kept thinking of two filmmakers, Christopher Nolan, and I'd not yet seen Oppenheimer, but I'd seen the Oppenheimer trailers, and James Cameron, and Titanic, for very different reasons. But how would Titanic, the movie, have been different if there'd been diesel engines?
0: Right, right. There's so many uh, naval battles as well, too. So so that's a great analogy by the the Titanic because you can picture in that famous scene in the movie when they go into the belly of the ship and there are dozens and dozens of guys with their shirts off sweating, shoveling coal into this orange fiery furnace for the steam engine, the steam turbine, because that relies on steam technology, which is coal burning this giant vat full of water, like literally a pot on a stove, but massive needs to boil water to generate steam, to move the parts of the engine. And diesel doesn't need any of that. There is no chimney apparatus. There's no furnace burning coal. There's no water. There's no intermediary substance of water. It's just fuel drawn down automatically from a tank. The fuel is combusted inside the engine. So it's a very compact, simple engine in that sense and takes up so much space. You don't need 50 people living on the ship who need food and a place to sleep who shovel coal. That's all gone. It just takes oil from a tank. Uh, So it really was a game changer for merchant shipping as well as ships of war.
3: Okay, ships of war. That brings us to submarines, of course. Why is the diesel engine so important for a submarine? By
0: 1913, when diesel had disappeared, the diesel engine had been firmly established as the only engine that could power a submarine or a U-boat. Kerosene and gasoline engines didn't work. It was constant boat fires, noxious fumes from the fuel And a number of submarines had gone down and and the crew had died from the fumes or the thing caught on fire. Just, it wasn't practical. Plus the range was almost nothing. They could barely get out of port and more than a hundred miles. Under diesel power, they had the range because of the, the increased fuel efficiency to get out into the open sea lanes and control the sea lanes. They could dive down without fear of fumes because the diesel fuel is basically inert and room temperature. It's, it's peanut oil or vegetable oil and it didn't cause fires it wasn't the fuel was not flammable and the fuel the engine doesn't start with a spark anyway as kerosene and gasoline engines do they start with a spark to ignite the fuel diesel is just a high pressure engine kind of like a bike pump that heats up it gets under very high pressure and only under pressure of about a thousand pounds per square inch does the fuel ignite. so it was safe and the submarines could travel long distances and become an offensive weapon So every Navy of the major powers had recognized this by 1913, and they were all scrambling for diesel expertise. Germany was still at the top because diesel had been working there for more than a decade with some of the top engineering firms in Germany. Great Britain and America were really lagging, and they needed help desperately. The man diesel became the center of the focus because there really were still only a handful of engineers who really understood the technology well because it was still such a new technology. So he became his key figure in the middle of a massive arms race, and in particular, the Anglo-German naval arms race. How different
3: would the 20th century have been if Diesel had not disappeared on the night of September 29th, 1913?
0: Gosh, hard to say. I mean, I I think it's hard to know what work might have continued if he were in Germany that— Things probably might have accelerated on the railroads. Just prior to his disappearance, this magazine, Scientific American, had had released an article saying that while it had not yet become the engine of the railroads, it, it was soon to do so. It, it identified diesel as this is the future of railroads. Within some number of years, diesel will take it. And that turned, turned out to be true. Um, Would
3: we all be more likely to have diesel engine cars right now instead of the kind of cars we have?
0: Yes, and especially if we had followed Rudolph's vision, which was that everything would run on alternative fuels. You know, back then, of course, they didn't call it alternative fuels because it wasn't <clears throat> clear that that petroleum would be the fuel. But things would be cleaner if we were all running on vegetable or, or nut oils. Um, and you know, one of the things about how unsettled the fuel situation was at that time. If you look at 1905 in New York City, the fleet of New York City taxi cabs was electric. There was power charging station on Broadway in Times Square. We were all running on electric cars in 1905. We forget that now. It's like, oh, these electric cars, this newfangled thing that Elon Musk is trying to do. This was here more than 100 years ago. And that fight was being fought even then. And there were some issues with the batteries. Edison was trying to work it out, actually. And they had nickel-based Batteries that were leaking, and so they had some trouble with the battery recharging uh, at that time. And in the end, Rockefeller won. Out. By the way, there was also a mysterious fire at an Edison plant that was working on car batteries, and which Jim, is okay. it, it's unexplained is how the, that you know, got started. But but uh, Rockefeller won out, and we went with gasoline-powered cars over electric.
3: So you enjoyed writing nonfiction a lot. I can tell. What's mm-hmm. the difference for you between writing nonfiction and fiction?
0: This gets borne out even in how I get the words on the page. When I'm writing fiction, I do a lot by hand. I'm scratching things and drawing arrows and moving things around from page to page. I don't know. I could kind of do it anywhere. I could do it on a, you know, as we talked about earlier, I could do it on a plane or an airport terminal. I could just pull out a pad of paper and start going. With nonfiction, I've got to be in my spot because I'd be surrounded by stacks of books and reference material. I, I would need an internet connection, whereas with fiction, I would, I would generally avoid any kind of internet connection at all. But with nonfiction, I also would type it in. I didn't I didn't do things by hand. In part, it was to, to track all of the sources and notes that I was doing. I just, I had to make, I mean, it was just, Chris, I, I got to tell you, when I got to the end of this and we we're going through the notes section and the sources material, it was unbelievable. As you know, I mean, there are, the bibliography is big, the number of notes I have is extensive, and making sure everything in the book, yeah, thank you for, Chris is holding that up, if you're if you're listening, he's holding up my notes section, it just took forever to make sure that everything was properly sourced, so the process was a little bit plotting and methodical to make sure that, you know, I, I was old school, I think there's software for all of this now, but I use a lot of index cards and things like that, which is probably how people did it back when I was in high school in the 80s, but... Uh, and I'm still more comfortable with that but so my even my process was different but my thinking was different but it, it was also like it was it was the most fun to have that sort of the nerdy side of Indiana Jones you know not the not the whip but like the classroom version and you'd find some piece of information and you'd think, oh my gosh, this is huge and anyone else on the planet might read this and think whatever but in the context of my story, what it meant, for the implications it had on the whole investigation, it was gold. And only a handful of people in the world might recognize what gold this is until they read the whole book and they see it in the context, you know, but only I and maybe no one else has the context. So I'd find something out of nowhere, some random archive, something written in German that my friend who speaks German translated for me. And I'd be like, oh my gosh, this is huge. So those moments were just spectacular.
3: As a novelist, I find nonfiction writing nonfiction intimidating as hell as a novelist, I can just make stuff up, but you can't with this book were you
0: intimidated? I was a little bit, but I was just so in love that I it all everything overcame it and I you know I, I know why you say that and I know what you mean because. I think we're all intimidated by the things that we don't do as well as somebody else. You know, I have friends in real estate finance and they'll pull up a spreadsheet that does all this stuff. I'm like, Oh my God, how do you do that? Like they'll, they'll be able to find the error in some spreadsheet in an Excel code thing. And I'm like, and he's like, I just sort of have a sense that there's an error in here and I kind of know where it is. And it's like a, a sixth sense of how to, how to navigate through Excel. <laughs> and I, yeah. I think, you know, you've got a gift and I, I just think that uh, as you dive into it, the, the mystery of it, you know, so my agent, he helped me write this proposal for nonfiction. And as I got more into it, I had just found something that was special and that I fell in love with and I couldn't wait to get back to it every morning. And so the intimidation that I had when I was learning how to write a proposal for it dissolved over time. But, but so, yes, when I was writing the proposal, I was thinking, how the hell am I going to do this? I, I haven't done this before. But that, w- that quickly <clears throat> dissipated.
3: Okay. Do you think you'll do it again? Another nonfiction book or is your next book going to be a novel?
0: I think the next one will be nonfiction. And uh, I won't say what, but I will say that my editor and I have this running joke that one writer's footnote can be another writer's entire book and, and <laughs> you grab the thread of something and you just go with it. And I think that in this case, one of my own footnotes might be my own next book. And I have fallen in love with this gilded age period, this quarter century before World War I. It and is a great period. A lot of what's going on in Europe. So I, I think the next book will probably stay in this period of time and have some connection to Diesel.
3: Great. Well, this is a wonderful book. If you are looking for your next great read, it's The Mysterious Case of Rudolf Diesel. Nonfiction, but the power of a novel. Nonfiction but an ending that will leave your jaw on the floor, like the best of Agatha Christie. Just an absolutely wonderful, fantastic novel. I devoured it. You will too. Chris, thank you. Oh, Doug, no, it's just, it's a great book. Thank you. And thank you for letting me sit on this side of the microphone. I had a great time. And <laughs> you're just a superstar talent. You're talented, you're natural. Right? No, hardly, but you're, a, you're just, anyway, this is wonderful. And it's great to drink with you as always.
0: Cheers. Cheers. If you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you.